0: So when it hits the ground running, we're getting really down to the wire in in the book of Acts. And so first of all, kudos to you for lasting. You know, we live in a culture where we're great starters, but poor finishers, right? So a lot of folks, or am I just talking about me? Is that just me? It may be just me. But anyway, I mean, really, culturally, we're like that. And so we're getting down to the point where people are going, oh, well, you know, we're towards the end and whatnot. But thank you for sticking it out. And hopefully, we've been able to use a lot of the book of Acts as a sort of a springboard into other topics and other things that are of interest. I was looking at our download rate on the messages that we did on what about tongues, and what about prophecy, and, and actually several hundred downloads, people downloading that message and listening to it, and so, so that's an interesting topic to people, and hopefully we're going to continue through that, and uh, we're just going to let the Bible be our launching pad for what God wants to say and what God wants to speak. Uh, just so you know, I do a lot of study and preparation when I come in here on a Wednesday night, however, however... I intentionally don't use notes and I intentionally try to say, Lord, what do you want said? What do you want done? So our basic strategy is we're going to do the next thing Jesus tells us to do. Amen. But if you're interested in a little bit more of a um, systematic strategy, our strategy vision, as, as many of you know, we're on the road to independence as a church. We've been part of Oak Hills for nine years when we were planted and how this thing developed we have a great heritage great history but all seven campuses are in the process of of disintegrating not disintegrating it sounds terrible but we're 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 breaking apart in the sense of we feel like a lot of what we've done as a multi-site large mega church of 10,000 people has limited us because what what goes for an urban setting in San Antonio doesn't always translate into a rural setting in Fredericksburg. Can I get an amen? amen? So one size does not fit all, and I love that Max and the team and others there have recognized that. Now Max is a small town boy, by the way. Andrews, Texas. Anybody know where Andrews is besides Annette? So yeah, if you if you have any West Texas blood in y'all, you know where Andrews is. Oil town, oil field, cotton field. It's that area. Uh, between Odessa and up towards Lubbock and that area. And so so I love the fact that Max, even though he's you know known worldwide, one of the most prolific authors of our time in the Christian realm, um, he also remembers what small-town America is like. So we call it America around here, right? We don't call 911, right? So he knows that. He realizes that. And so I love the fact that he's like, Jimmy, you guys are ready. And we realize that what works here doesn't always work there, and yet we've tried to force fit things. And so I love the heart of our team, the heart of our family. And so for those of you who don't know, we're on that journey right now. Our target is September 1st, and uh, we're in the throes. We're basically launching a new church with 450 people already coming. So it's, it's, it's a crazy logistical nightmare. So be praying for us, for our team, for our leadership. The exciting thing is, is that the Lord who makes all things new which we know that's coming someday, right? Depending on your eschatology, you know, study of the end times, it's either going to be before or after Armageddon and all that stuff. I mean, the world burning up and hailstones and all that stuff. So, but at the end of the day, my favorite part is is he makes all things new and he will restore all things. So he is going to do something. Whatever happens between now and then to me is a speed bump compared to eternity. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dot compared to a 3,000-mile-long you know, line. So to me, what's coming is exciting, but what's neat is that as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we get to experience things now because heaven is invading earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus said, hey, pray like this. Pray this. You know, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. The beauty of that is, is we get to walk that out. We get to participate in that. We get to experience that. And what it does, it turns boring religion into an exciting adventure. And if you're in on what God's up to, I'm telling you, if your Christian life is boring, we need to talk. First of all, we need to check your pulse. Then we need to check your salvation. Are you saved? Really, do you get it? I mean, God is up to amazing things. And so here's the deal. We want to invite people into the party. I love what my, my mentor Jack Taylor, who's now I lost count, around eighty six years of age, still speaks with R. T. Kendall and 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 uh, uh, Carrington, Carrington. I can't remember his last name, Karen. Karen. Yeah. R.T. Kendall and Karen. I can't remember his first name. But anyway, these guys are powerhouses all in their 80s. They've forgotten more than we'll ever learn, and yet they're out there doing word, spirit, and power conferences all over the world right now in their 80s, no sign of slowing down. And he told me, he said, said, Jimmy, son, the kingdom is a party. The kingdom is a party. This is an 80-something-year-old guy who's like, there's no such thing as retirement in his vocabulary. And so I love that. What a model for us. But get that. We want people to to come into the party. There's a parable, a wedding feast, where Jesus tells a story, and he says there's a wedding that's being thrown. There's a party about to happen. He says, go to those that you know. And they invited this list of guests. And when they they sent out the invitations, they, they all got rejected. No RSVPs. Nobody's coming. And so in the story... The, the person throwing the party, the father, says, go out on the highways and by the ways and compel them to come in. Not, not the ones that were invited, but whosoever will. I mean, what a picture of evangelism. And so the story goes where they go out and they bring in all these people and they throw this massive party for a bunch of misfits. And that should make you feel real good right now. Because we all fit that description. Amen. So the kingdom's a party. We want people to join the party. We want people to catch the fever and catch the excitement of what God's up to. And if they come in and they don't catch that, then again, we need to check their pulse, check where they are, and say, hey, maybe we need to take some steps towards Jesus and get you on the journey, right? So that's our heart. That's what we're doing. So we want to be excited about what God's up to and be a part of. So what's happening with us as a church family is that we're down this road. We're, getting, we're looking towards launch. We're looking towards an exciting thing. So there's new, fresh things coming. One of the things I want to share with you and continue to remind you of is our 4D, the harvest vision. So it means to discover, to develop, deploy. And my favorite D up there is disrupt. And remember, that's a positive term, not a negative term. We tend to think of it in negative in negative light it's not negative it is a positive thing the disruptive nature of jesus i don't know about you but he disrupted my life thank heaven he busted up into my business when i was 18 19 years of age and said and basically asked me the same question we ask you how's that working for you I was doing my best, and it was not working for me. And so Jesus breaks up and disrupts me. That means to interrupt. So I think I have the definition of it. I do. Disrupt means this, a break or interruption in the normal course or, conti- or continuation of some activity or process. So if you've been living your life without God, without Jesus, without purpose, without direction, without a sense of destiny, if uh, you dread Monday morning, see, those of us in Christ ought to wake up on Monday and go, T-G-I-M. You know what that means, Right? thank God it's Monday, right? TGIT, thank God it's Tuesday. I mean, we ought to wake up thinking we hit the lottery every day because we get to do this. And at the end of it all, no matter how good or bad this thing goes, at the end of it all, we win, right? Because we're in Christ. And so in the end, we win. And in the meantime, we win too. So I mean, what a deal. It's a win-win deal when you're in Jesus. Woke up, hit the lottery. So this idea of disruption is we get to carry the disruptive nature of Jesus into everything we do, which is simply this, a break or interruption in the normal course or continuation of some activity or process in your job place, where you live, where you work, and where you play. We get to walk into that and bring disruption in the best possible way. There are other agendas out there. You know that, right? There are a lot of agendas out there and they're trying to disrupt your normal course of action as well. So why is it okay for everybody else to be disrupted, but we're supposed to just be quiet? I don't know about you. I don't think we're supposed to go quietly from this earth. Right? B-I-B-L-E. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Right? That's what Bible means. and You knew that, right? So, so we need to get the handbook, get into it, get our instructions, get our marching orders, and get on the great commission, the mission of Jesus. Amen? And live that missional life where we bring this disruptive nature into everything we do. And people say, I don't know what it is about you, but why do you live that way? Or why are you... People should be compelled by our lives to ask questions. And what does a witness do? Help me, somebody. They answer the questions. They just show up and answer the questions. But if our life isn't compelling enough that people are asking questions, then we need to what? Check our pulse again, right? Right? Something, something's not right. But remember, where there's a pulse, there's a purpose. Where there's a pulse, there's a promise. Right? Amen? So anyway, break or interruption, normal course or continuation of some activity or process. I love synonyms. I'm a synonym guy. Break up, disintegrate, to fracture, to fragment, to disturb. I like that one. To disturb or upheaval, to create that. So that's what the disruptive nature is. So living life in 4D is a part of our strategic process that we want to create a bunch of disruptors, not rebels, maybe revolutionaries in the right sense of the word, but we want to create disruptors to where wherever you live, work, or play, people are asking you questions because something's breaking and interrupting the normal course of some activity. Hope that makes sense. Moving on. Here's what we're going to talk about tonight. Acts 21, 1 through 36. Tonight's going to be a little more reading, but we'll, we'll pause and, and bring some interest to it. But you have to understand, we're in a travel piece right now. It's, this is life. Now they're traveling. So they've been going and you know, they spent three years in Ephesus. They reached all of Asia with the gospel at the time. They were in Greece. They were in southern Europe. And so at first, second, and third missionary journeys, Paul and his, and his compadres, they've been breach, preaching the gospel, leaking life everywhere they go, and disrupting. Talk about disruptive. They've been disruptive. And now... Paul has a mission, and he one, he wants to go to Rome. And the reason he wants to go to Rome is that he knows strategically that if he can reach Rome with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it will reach the known world because Rome was in power at the time. That's the political force. So that's exactly what happened when he went to Ephesus and was able to reach Asia because Ephesus was such a, an influential city in Asia, when he reached the influence. So Paul's strategy, think about this. Think about this. Have you ever stopped to think strategically about evangelism? Maybe not, but I have been since I was 19 years of age because that's the call of my life. And so I thought a number of years ago that it was wonderful that we try to reach everybody with the gospel, but I also strategically begin to think: what if we influenced the influencers in the community? What if I spent time with Mayor Grady Barr and later later, uh, Mayor Norm Archibald? This was in Abilene. We were there for 10 years, and I began meeting with these men. First, uh, Grady Barr, and then when Grady retired, then Norm was elected, and then I started meeting with Norm Archibald. If any of you all know anything about ACU, Norm used to be a campus minister at ACU and and, uh, had become a dear friend of mine because I would meet with him on a monthly basis to pray about our city. So I thought, if I can influence the influencers, then one person can influence everybody. Does that make sense? So sometimes our evangelistic model's been backwards, where we just trying to reach helter-skelter everybody, which we should, as we go. But there's also something strategic when we're thinking about not just addition, but multiplication. Does that make sense? If we're going to reach more, that means we've got to reach those who are already connected to more. Does that make sense? So in a sense, it's networking. I mean, in a weird way, but it really is. And so that was our strategy in Abilene. We were able to have great impact and actually influence. I told you about the blessing campaigns, what's right with Abilene. They did the billboards and all that. All that was because we were strategic in nature. So neat things like that. Paul knew if he could influence Rome, he could influence the known world. So Paul was smart. So Paul's thinking... I want to go to Rome. In fact, let me show you. I think I have a map. Up. Yeah, there it is. So he wanted to go to Rome, right? And he wanted to go uh, go reach Rome, knowing this was the center of political and military power. Okay, so so he but he was over here in, in Asia, in Ephesus in Asia. So look at the distance and the travel it would take to get there, right? So we're not talking about a short span here. Now, and by the way, he wasn't flying in an airplane. There was no hoppers going over there, no segways, no scooters. It was was either by boat or foot, hoofing it. So here he is, but remember last time we were together, he says, I must go to where? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Good, you're listening. So he needs to go back to Jerusalem. Does anybody remember why he needed to go to Jerusalem? That's right. They had received an offering because there were, there were horrific things going on. Oops, I always do that. There were horrific things going on here. There was political upheaval. There were Christians being persecuted. There was famine. So a lot of things were, were impacting the economy there. Also, Roman had just dropped the hammer a political rule on him. And so they were suffering. And so he wanted to get this offering, which he had collected from all the outpost church that they had traveled to. And everybody said, yeah, we want to help the, the Christians in Jerusalem. Of course we want to help. So they were pitching in. So by the time he's getting ready to make the trip, he says, I must go to Jerusalem first. So now they're getting ready to do some travel. So they're getting ready. And you're going to see and we'll, we'll track along with them. It's a little bit hard to see from where you are, but this right here gives us that line back towards Tyre, Sidon, which today would be uh, modern Akko or Akko. Uh, if you're familiar with the Haifa Bay of Israel, Mediterranean Sea, which is all right there. It's where Haifa Bay is right there. So that's where they were going to head back to because that was a port. So we're going to start reading and right here. Acts 21, 1 to 3. I'm using the NIV. I like the older 84 version better than the upgraded one. Uh, but that's just a preference thing. So if you're reading an NIV and it doesn't read exactly the same, it's going to be real close. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight to Kos. The next day, we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. So there's a lot of travel details here. Remember, this is Luke, the physician. Physicians tend to be linear and detailed, right? So he would have been high C on the disc test. So so he's given he's given details which we're going uh, why but here's the thing it's interesting all of those places are about one day journey and they were they were there was these smaller boats they had just like us they had different types of transportation even in boats there were different sizes of boats there were boats that were made for longer voyages and longer journeys we'll see a 400 mile journey here in a minute but then these little these were all called coastal craft or coastal boats. So they weren't made to go deep out into the sea. They would just run along the coastline and they would take people up and down and goods and supplies to the various port cities. So all these little spots where they're stopping are little ports that they're going to, just the typical normal travel. In other words, these are real people doing real travel just like you and I would. So that's sort of their interstate system, kind of like ours. So They're making this trip. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed to Syria. Going back to our map, we're talking about uh, this area here. And now there's Cyprus right here and they're heading back down this way. So they're making the trip, but they were bouncing all along the coast here and now they're skipping over here. So they go just south, just south of Cyprus. So that's where they are. Just to give you a little heads up of where that is. So it says this. We found a ship crossing over after sighting Cyprus, passing to the south of it. We sailed to Syria. We landed at Tyre, that's modern-day Akko, where our ship was to unload its cargo. So they're saying, hey, here's the trip. This is what it looks like. Now, verse 4, finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. So they found brothers in Christ, they found believers and Christians, and they hung out with them. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Why do you think they would urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem? Simple answer. The unrest, and if Paul showed his face back in Jerusalem, he could be killed. Because they were looking out for him. Because his... Renown had spread, much like Jesus, they were looking for him. So if he were to show up in Jerusalem, it would be really to risk his life. And so the brothers, look what it, notice what it says. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. In other words, there there was a strong grace of prophecy on the early disciples. Still is. We just sometimes ignore it. It's still there. It hasn't diminished, it hasn't changed. We just often don't identify it. In fact, there are a lot of things that we say to each other that we don't even realize we're actually prophesying. Remember, foretelling and forthtelling Both are the two components of prophecy. So we still do it. Sometimes we don't even know we're doing it. So they say, through the Spirit, they're saying, don't go, you'll be killed. Now, it's interesting here that through the Spirit, they're saying this, but look at the response. But when our time was up, we left. Remember, this is, this is Luke writing, Dr. Luke. And continued on our way All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city, and there on the beach we knelt to pray. In other words, Paul decided, I'm still going. He was compelled to go, even at the risk of his life. So think about Paul's commitment to the believers. Remember, he had traveled all over, going back through the churches that he had planted. All these small gatherings, these small house churches, these small outposts, if you will, he had made several trips back through all of them, encouraging them, strengthening them. In the case of Corinth and in Crete, he was actually having to correct them and bring correction to the doctrine and and warning. So he was having to do a lot of various things. And in the midst of that, what's generated are the letters that we read in the New Testament. Book of Philippians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, the book of Colossians, the book of uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus. All of those are letters that were written to both churches and some individuals, but they were all in the midst of these journeys that we just walked through with Paul. All of these were being written in real time. So realize the Bible, was not they didn't sit down and write out you know, 13 letters of Paul. He didn't sit down and just type those out on a computer. He literally was writing these in real time, answering and dealing with real issues. When we read the Bible, it's good to understand that so that we read it both in its historical context and then what is the Lord saying to me through this? So you have to understand the Bible is stacked with truth, it's layered. So we have to read it with the understanding that there's an original historical reason, there's an original primary purpose. The book of 1 Corinthians was written to correct and straighten out a bunch of mess that was going on in the church of Corinth. It lightens up in 2 Corinthians and changes its tone. The book of Philippians was a book of joy where Paul is gushing over his love for the believers in Philippi. So it was written for a purpose. The the term rejoice or joy is mentioned over 16 times in a very short book because he loved them so much. He had an affinity for them. He loved them. The church, the book of Ephesus, my goodness, what a rich theological book, much more complex, very much similar to the book of Romans and the book of Colossians is the short version of that. And those were written to to bring doctrine and teaching and and order to the church. So a lot of topics get covered through the book of Ephesians. He loved the believers in Ephesus because he was with them for three years. It was his outpost. So you have to realize the Bible was written from various perspectives, but there is a real historical context. Does this make sense, what I'm saying? I'm saying a lot of words. I just hope I'm landing the mark here because you have to understand, when we read it devotionally, it's not just what you read on your version Bible with a checkbox where they say, okay, read these verses, read these verses, and then they have these topics. It's all good. It's all great. I read them too. I like them. I enjoy them. But I always read them from the perspective of historical context and remember this context is what king context is king so read the bible deep dive don't be afraid to study don't be afraid to look things up and study to show yourself as the scripture says approved unto god a workman rightly dividing the word of truth not ashamed i mean study deep dive it's okay to do that learn for yourself so finding them so here we are they find the disciples they spend some time with them and they're worried about Paul going to Jerusalem. And what do they do? They kneel down. I love that. Company us out of the city and they're on the beach. Why on the beach? It's where the port was and they were about to, to, to set sail. Going south. There on the beach we knelt to pray. I love that. It's a beautiful picture of what happened. Kind of reminded me, actually as I was reading this, it reminded me of what we did with Kate and Austin on Sunday when they announced what God's doing in their life. And we've been walking through this journey with them. Uh, neat thing is that Annette and I are going to get to, we're going to spend some time with their with the pastor there. You got to hear him. You remember he said Austin and Kit. You know I love the love the uh, the brogue, uh, Scottish Irish brogue. But we're going to get to meet them in a couple of weeks and spend some time with them when we go up there. So uh, really cool thing. But it reminds me the same spirit is that we prayed and I cried when. Especially in the first service, I was okay. In the second service, first service is all kind of fresh. When Kate shared the story of how God showed them, this is what they're supposed to do, and and brought confirmation to their heart that because this is a big deal. You know, they're not going down the street. I mean, we're talking across halfway across the world. So so it was really emotional for me. Same thing. They knelt down on the, and prayed on the beach. I think it's beautiful. Verse 6, after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, and they returned home. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais, where we greeted the brothers, more believers that they connected with, and stayed with them for a day. So they're, they're still, even as they're going, they're connecting with the believers in the various port cities that they're stopping at. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, that's on south in Israel, and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. Remember Philip? Not from Philippi, just Philip. He's the Evangelist. And, uh, and one of the, he was one of the seven. So, so they spend time with one of their brothers who is a powerful, powerful man of God, powerful minister of the gospel. So moving right along, he had four unmarried daughters. So, so Philip has some unmarried daughters, and look what it says. Who prophesied. Does anyone remember Acts chapter 2, verse 17 and following, where when at Pentecost, when Peter stood, he said this and he quoted a passage out of the book of Joel? Okay, and it was a prophetic passage. It said, In the last days, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, right? Your old men will dream dreams. Thank you very much. No, your old men will. I can't remember off the top of my head. Your young men will dream dreams. Your old men will see visions. There it is. There it is. Your old men will dream. Okay, I'm seeing visions. I just can't remember them. Uh, Your old men will see visions. We just can't remember them, right? But your old men will see visions. Your young men will dream dreams. On your handmaiden and your hand servants, maidens. I will pour out of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I mean, it goes on and on. It's a powerful, powerful prophecy. And what we see here is an example of that being fleshed out years later with Philip and his daughters. And look what it says. They prophesied. They had a gift, a grace gift of prophecy that we already know has been poured out upon, listen to this, all flesh. By the way, it means everybody. That spirit is in the world, upon the world, And uh, I've shared my heart on some of that, but we'll just keep moving. So had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So you can see that the church in these early stages was on fire. Spiritual gifts were flowing and moving. They were doing this as though it's normal. Nowadays, if somebody has a prophetic word, it's like, oh my gosh, oh, whoa, 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 you sure? How, 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 instead of saying, wow, wow, wow. Remember what we want to say? Instead of how, we need to be saying, wow, wow. So they lived life as though the work of the spirit and the supernatural and an understanding of an unseen realm was natural. We, in our Western mindset in America, very far removed from an Eastern mindset, see these things and we're like just blown away. Like, oh my goodness. Or if we see them in our midst, we question. Are you sure about that? Are you sure? Well, you you better watch them. Well, you know that church down the street. I mean, come on. We've all been there, right? So, they acted as though it was the normal Christian life. And guess what? That's ground zero for a Christian. We've made some superior thing. And oh, man, if they have that gift, then they should be up on the pedestal. If they have that gift, they're, they're, they're different, esoteric, mysterious but here it's for everybody, and that spirit of prophecy has been poured out upon you. All flesh. Also your kids. Have you ever had your kids in the back seat when they're four years old say something that you're like, where did that come from? That sounded like something God would say. That happened to us when Faith was a little kid. She would be like typical rug rat, you know, I'm ready, I'm about to swatter over the back seat, you know, and then all of a sudden something comes out of her that is otherworldly. A statement. A word, a message where we're like, okay, that was not that kid. That was the Spirit of the Lord on that child, speaking to us. I don't know if that's ever happened to y'all. Why? Because that Spirit's been poured out on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. So that was what's going on with Philip. So now, Agabus comes down from Judea and see what happens. Verse 11, Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt tied his own hands and feet with it. So I mean, hey, he's doing something very demonstrative. That'd be like somebody coming up to you and said, "Excuse me, could I have your belt?" and you're like, "Excuse me?" Yeah, it would be a little awkward, right? But he does this as a prophetic act, a demonstration. Many times in the scripture, you'll see see things demonstrated. I love something Bill Johnson says about the how do you know that the baptism in the Holy Spirit is real? You know it because whoever has it is walking in power. Well, duh. you think that would be obvious. We want to cut that all up and go, well, wait a minute. Are they this? Are they this? Did they pray just right? Did they pray out of Acts 11? Did they pray out of Acts 2? They've, I mean, we have all this stuff. It's, it's very simple. Dunamis is at work in their life. They're a walking demonstration of the gospel, the power of God in their life. And that means where they go, fruit follows. Not fruits. Fruit. Fruit produce, the fruit of the Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit, things being worked out, follow them wherever you go. And these signs shall follow them that believe. And so what's happening here, so Agabus goes up to Paul and says, excuse me, Paul, good to meet you. Could I have your belt, please? <laughs> um, sure. You know? So Paul gives him his belt. And look what happens. Agabus tied his own hands and feet with it and said, the Holy Spirit says in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. All right, do you think Paul's encouraged so far? All right. He says, when he heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So they felt like this is a warning. God's shooting, you know, it's a shot over the bow. There's a warning. And, and Luke says, when we heard this, look what they did. We and the people, everybody gathered there, the disciples, the brothers, the families, they pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. There was a concern. Now, if they're, if they're sort of uh, actually somewhat north of Jerusalem, why would they say go up to Jerusalem? Because Jerusalem is elevated. It's the topography. So we don't think in those terms. We think you go up to Lubbock, right? <laughs> Actually, Lubbock, there's no up in Lubbock. It's flat, but we think on the map, right? We go up to Lubbock, or we go over to... But actually, that's not how they thought. They thought in terms of topography. So they're going to go up to Jerusalem, even if they're north of it, if that makes sense. There's a little tidbit there. You can wow your friends with that one. So, later. So when he heard this, he and the people pleaded, or when we heard it, not to go up to Jerusalem. Look what happens. Verse 13. When Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Do you hear Paul's heart in this? He's like, look, if it's my time, it's my time. But I personally am taking this gift, this offering, this blessing to the believers because people have given and I feel responsible to bring that, to hand deliver that to them. And he's like, if I have to die, that's all right. For the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up. Have you ever talked to anybody who is determined to do something and you finally realize, I'm banging my head against the wall? They're going to do it anyway. That can be a good thing. That can be a bad thing. When my daughter was 16 and we discovered she had been taking our car, not faith, this is my older daughter. She had been taking my car, our car joyriding. She had been just... Crashing and burning spiritually, emotionally, and she had done some other things. I remember talking to her in her bedroom one time, and and I was giving her lecture number 3,780. I mean, I I had them kind of categorized by it, and so did she, by the way. And she was giving me that look like, I'm looking at you, but I'm not hearing you. You know what I mean? That I'm trying to look like I'm listening, but I could care less. I'm somewhere else. So I was getting that look, and the Holy Spirit said, she's not listening. Hello? And so I just said, I, I remember standing there, I was so frustrated. And I just walked over and sat on her bed because she was sitting on her bed. And I just said, "I said, you know what? You're going to do whatever you want to do, aren't you? And I said, here's the deal. Whatever you do, you'll never outrun mine and your mom's love for you. And so I'm, I'm releasing you because I couldn't control. I couldn't stop it. And what I had done up to that point wasn't working. And so I felt like the Lord whispered to me and said, back door, side door. I mean, it was like, don't take your normal approach. And I told her, I said, you know what? I love you so much, I'm letting you go. Crazy thing happened. Something broke in her after that. But it took me releasing. It took me letting go. It took me giving up and saying, you know what, you're going to do what you're going to do, but I'm going to love you, and you can't do anything about that. It changed our relationship, and we saw some things turn after that. But it was this idea of sometimes you just have to give up, because if you think, let's just talk in terms of trying to lead someone towards Christ. We as parents have driven Jesus down our kids' and families' throats at various times. Am I the only human in the room? So, all right, we've all done that. We mean well. Our heart is right. But our approach lacks wisdom and tact, right? So a lot of times we actually drive people away from the gospel because we're trying to compel them, force them, drive them toward Jesus when in fact what we're doing is driving them away. Because here's the bottom line. There's not a human in this room that can change a human heart. No matter what you say, what you do... Now, we can radically love people, and there's a power behind that that is crazy otherworldly. We can radically love, we can radically extravagantly love people, we can, we can grace people. I'm not a racist, I'm a gracist, you know what I mean? We can grace people and pour life into them, and that God can use that as the material to build something that will change a life. But our judgment, our criticism, our control, our manipulation, all those things that we try to do is not going to ever change a human heart. And you will never talk anyone into or argue anyone into becoming a follower of Jesus. Amen? That's a fact. Sometimes you just got to give up and go, you know what? I'm backing out of this. Lord, it's all you, period. And now we move into the posture of prayer and intercession on behalf of somebody asking the Lord to make their heart tender, as opposed to thinking we have, are responsible to make them believe. It sure changes the way you do evangelism. You become a lot more loving, a lot more strategic, a lot more grace-oriented, and it's amazing because people start asking questions. It's the craziest thing. I think God knows what he's talking about. So when he would not be dissuaded, we just gave up said, the Lord's will be... They're like, Paul's going, just quit. So look what happens. Verse 15, after this, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, went up the hill to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus. Remember, Cyprus is out in the Mediterranean, a little island and one of the early disciples. So there could have been some maturity here, somebody they knew, somebody that was known. Now, Paul ends up at Jerusalem. Remember, they're scared to go to Jerusalem. Paul's not stopping. They end up there. Verse 17. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. It's like a family reunion at this point. They've known each other now for years. They've been doing life, and they've known of Paul's travels and Paul's journeys. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. Remember James? Remember James? James is the subtle one in the Bible, right, Steve? He, he's the subtle, you know. The book of James is subtle as a cinder block brick, right? So he's just cut to the chase, tell it like it is. My wife's favorite book in the Bible, I think. So we've talked about that before. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. So now we're talking about the Jerusalem Council. These are all like the, the, the center and the seat of Christianity in the known world. These were the leaders. These were the early early leaders. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. You know what this was? They were putting wins on the board. They were celebrating the W's. Celebrating the wins. I've got to tell you what God did in Cyprus. got to tell you the crazy stuff that happened in Ephesus. got to tell you about this thing that happened on Mars Hill When I was up against all the philosophers and I preached Jesus from a completely different angle, can you imagine the celebration? Oh, you wouldn't believe what happened. There was this demon-possessed girl and she was annoying us for days. I turned around and cast the devil. I mean, you can imagine them high-fiving and chest-bumping and going, it was amazing. They're talking about the goodness of God and Have you ever been on a journey, an adventure, a hike, climbed a mountain, been on a trip, and you come back and you got pictures and video and you're dragging all your friends over saying, hey, we'll cook for you if you'll come watch our home videos. And you're excited because you want to share the adventure. That's what they're doing. They're having a great time. They're celebrating. And you know what? We need to do a lot more celebrating around here. That's why we go, hey, do we have any overflow stories? What's God been up to? Why? So we can celebrate with you The goodness of God being active in your life. So don't hold back. And don't think, well, my story's not epic. You know, that story over on the other side of the room, whoa, I'm not even talking after that, because whoa, that was amazing. Hey, everything's amazing. Everything's amazing in the kingdom. Whether it's a millimeter or a mile, we need to celebrate it. Celebrate all the movement. Does that make sense? So let us join in on the party with you, even if it's a little thing or a subtle thing. It's all important, and movement counts in the kingdom. Amen? I'm all about movement. You're going to hear more about that over a little time. I am all about movement. So listen to this. So they received us. They're partying. They're having a great time reporting in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Remember... In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, they were told, you're going to start in Jerusalem, then you're going to branch out to all Judea, that area, and then you're going to go to where? Samaria. Samaria. Whoa, that's where those Gentiles are. That's where those crazy people are. That's on the other side of the tracks. That's where those dirty people are. Unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles. Look what happens. Paul, on his journey, is going to all the Gentiles. He's taking this to the world. And God's showing up and He says, look what happened among the Gentiles. So instead of disdaining the Gentiles, they now have a strategy because of the love of Christ compelling them to reach the people they formerly thought were dirty, unclean, and untouchable. Let me tell you something. Any church, Oak Hills Church, Hill Country Bible, St. Mary's, I don't care, name a church in town, name a church out in the country, I don't care, Cowboy Church down the street. The day we begin to realize our call is to the world and not just to our, our people group, the people we like to hang around with. Everything changes. When that ball drops, revival comes. When we quit judging people by what they wear, what they smell like, what they look like, what they drive, where they go to school, and we begin to say, that is a soul for whom Christ died. I don't care what their lot in life is at this point. And when we quit judging that and we start loving that, and we start seeing everybody as a soul that's been crafted by God and in the image of God, the Latin, the Imago Day of God. And when we begin to get that and that starts to shift our thinking, revival will come. You want revival? Let's start winning everybody to Jesus instead of our own type, our own kind. Can I get an amen? Or an oh my, I have should have wore my steel toe boots tonight. All right. So, they're celebrating They're excited, and then look what happens. Verse 20, when they heard this, they praised God. Should that not be the response? Worship, pray, just celebrate. Remember, the kingdom's a party, according to Dr. Jack Taylor. When they heard this, they praised God. They celebrated. Then they said to Paul, you see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our cousin. So in the middle of celebration, we have an issue. There's always an issue with the church, right? It's just always somebody bent out of shape. Right, pastor? It just, hey, welcome to the people business. I don't get shocked anymore that doesn't mean I like it, but I don't get, like, surprised when I find out someone's upset. It's like, okay, you know, hello, We're, we've got record going all the way back to the book. So, it's not uncommon, so look what happened. So, we've got all these thousands who believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. Ooh, wait a minute. Zealous for the law? Shouldn't they be zealous for the new covenant? The one that the writer of Hebrews calls a new and better covenant? But the problem is, is they still haven't quite crossed over from the old covenant to the new and better covenant. They're hanging on. We talked about the past on Sunday. They're hanging on to the past. That's the 57-year-old guy that still has a letter jacket in his closet that he pulls out every once in a while and tries to put it on, and it will not fit anymore, right? He's still, he's got his trophies. Instead of being up in a box in the attic, they're still being displayed in in his man cave. Because he's living the glory days. I'm sorry if that's you. So I just thought, man, there may be somebody sitting here. Is that, sorry. So sometimes you just got to let the glory days go. It's okay to look back and learn, but we got to move forward. Amen? Come out of the 60s. Come out of the 70s. Because we got people right around us right now that need to hear good news that's current and alive. And your testimony, if it's 20 years old, it's too old. It should be a couple of hours old or a few minutes old. Amen? Amen? Jesus is working our lives right here, right now. But right here, we've got some, a group, thousands that are hanging on to the old way. They won't let go. They want Jesus, but they're afraid to let go. Look what happens. And they're all worked up. The hen house is stirred up. Verse 22, what shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come, so, so do what we, what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Okay, they're saying let's just compromise this whole thing. Just we want to appease some folks. Let me tell you something. I learned the hard way. I've been in this 35 years. Some of you have been in a lot longer than me. But here's what I learned. When you try to appease people and try to quiet, not ruffle feathers, and not be yourself, you not only violate your own integrity, you, invi- you violate the calling that's on your life. When you're just trying to placate people. And let me just say something in love. We've got way too many nice churches that are not bearing fruit. And sometimes to bear fruit, you've got to go there on some stuff. Amen? That's why we're getting the sign made. I'm telling you, no perfect people allowed. Because listen, this thing is not going to be clean and shiny. Remember about the messy stalls? If there's a great harvest, that means the stalls are messy because there's oxen in the stall. So it can get real messy here. Now look what happens. Verse 25. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idol, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. He's like, okay, all right, let's. I ain't got time for this, so we're gonna do. We're gonna do a little bit here. Next day, Paul took the men, purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. So Paul's kind of going, okay, all right, we're going to see what we can do to navigate this because he's dealing with real people. And this is why I like going through a book like this is because we have to understand these are real people with real stuff. We can read it from a distance and think, wow, that's terrible that they do that and forget, wait, we may be doing some forms of this stuff. What are we putting on people that come into the church? What are we demanding of them? Not verbally necessarily, but maybe just in our actions, the way we treat them, the way we introduce or not introduce, the way we avoid, the way we invite somebody to sit with us, but we're not going to invite that one to sit with us, the way we judge what somebody's wearing. What, What do we do that may look a little bit like this, but it's just modernized, it's in our time? And so what does that say to me? I don't know what it says to you, but it says to me, I don't need to judge what's going on here. I need to say, okay, Lord, where am I doing this? Where am I judging people? Where am I missing it? Where am I not being kind? Where am I avoiding somebody in the hallway? Where am I, where am I ducking out? Where am I isolating? Where am I just constantly saying, Lord, show me, show me, show me the blind spots. So look what happens. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. Remember Asia? All of Asia we read earlier was reached with the gospel because of Paul's time in Ephesus. So look at this. Some Jews from there saw Paul at the temple. So these Jews from Asia are now in Jerusalem worshiping during these days of purification and it says this. They stirred up the whole crowd. So they're upset. Oh, here's that rabble rouser. Here's that usurper. Here's that blasphemer. And they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They are working everybody up. All right? They're about to incite a riot here. They're created because Paul, the disruptor, has shown up. Now we land with this. We're at the home stretch. Look at this. As They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. He was a Greek. And you don't bring a Greek, an uncircumcised Gentile, into the temple. And they assumed that Paul had brought him into that area. The whole city was aroused. We're talking about all of Jerusalem. All of a sudden, the hen house is stirred up. And the people, the reason I use that metaphor, not just because I'm from West Texas, but I do that a lot. Here's, when I was in high school, there was a chicken farm out by Post, Texas. And it was huge. There were like four of these very long, I mean, they looked like they were hundreds of yards long, and they housed millions of chickens. And our band and our football team and our sports, we'd go, as fundraisers, we'd go work the chicken houses. Oh, man, it was nasty work. It would make you not ever want eggs from a farm again. But we would go out there, but you could walk into one of those chicken houses, hundreds of yards long, and you could open it up real quiet and there would not be a sound. You might hear a little, you know, here and there. And then if you wanted to really just stir things up, you just slap that tin wall. And from there all the way back, a roar would start. And I mean, by the time it got to the other end, hundreds of yards, those thing, they were worked up. And I remember, sometimes I look at the church and I go, man, the church is a lot like a hen house sometimes. <laughs> you know, you slap the wall over here and by the time it gets to the back, I mean, it's like mayhem. The sky's falling, the sky's falling. I mean, and it was just a little bump up here. And so when I say that, there's a metaphor in my mind. So I'm sorry I just throw that out without telling you what that means. So now you know. So, uh, look what happens. The whole city was aroused. They came running from all directions. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. The blasphemers here. Because, remember, they were worried that if he went, he would be killed. They seized Paul. They dragged him from the temple. And immediately, the gates were shut. Uh Uh-oh. All right? We're going to land the plane. While they were trying to kill him... (laughs) All right, the Bible just says, and while they were trying to kill them, by the way, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Which, by the way, you don't mess with Rome. And you disrupt the city, you, you're now, you've created a, a serious scene. And so the commander no, hears that it's all He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. It's a good thing Rome showed up. So they're beating Paul. They're, it's a mob, mob rule, and they, because of fear, they stop. All right, last two verses. The commander came up and arrested him, ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked, "All right, who are you, who he was, and what, what have you done? What did he have done?" Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. It's like, there's mayhem. This is chaos. It's a crowd. They're all worked up. The hen house is out of control. And he can't get a straight answer out of anybody. So he takes him in. And look what happens. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. I mean, they were literally about to tear him apart. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him, away with him. Now, we're going to pick it up next week. And Paul asks permission after this to address the crowd. All these people that are are trying to kill him, he has something to say. And you're going to see what Paul says to them in response. And it's, it's powerful. It's powerful. So let's pray together. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for your word. Thank you for taking us along on this journey through the book of Acts. And Lord, give us grace to, to somehow, some way, with our sanctified imagination, insert ourselves into the pages of the text into the, the, the history of this time, and, and understand the dynamics of what was going on, politically, what was going on spiritually, the kingdom advancing, but also the kingdom of the enemy resisting. There was so much going on. So give us grace as we traffic through this, as we continue down this, this road to really sense, feel, hear, understand what was going on and how incredibly volatile the world was when the gospel was being preached in these early years. And Father, help us to extrapolate and take this and say, what does that mean for me in my context? What does that mean for me here right now? So would you, with every head bowed, every eye closed, would you just ask yourself, would you ask the Lord, Lord, what does this mean for me? So Father, I trust that you're speaking to our hearts all through this room, and you're going to help us begin to know what this means for us, how this speaks to us. Give us grace as we posture ourselves as sons and daughters and as disciples. In Jesus' name, everyone said, "Amen." Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you.